I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Well, if you were to get engaged, and you asked my wife and I to lead your premarital counseling, and you were to come over to our house in the evenings for dessert, and to hang out with our kids, and then to do some counseling, you'd hear a bunch of stories. Some of them serious, many of them silly, but they're stories that typically only get told in my living room. But sometimes they come into the sanctuary as well. This is one of them. Years ago when I was engaged, my wife and I were engaged, and we were just a few weeks away from our wedding, and we had our last session of premarital counseling, and the pastor had been doing the counseling by himself, but this session his wife was going to come in, and we were talking about marital intimacy. And his wife, bless her heart, was a medical doctor. This is where this is going. And uh, she was far more accustomed to talking about the human body than most people, especially me. And partly because of the modesty with which I grew up, partly because of my own sin, partly because of the scientific realities put before us. Um, I became very and increasingly uncomfortable and socially awkward. Uh, No eye contact, looking, you know, fidgeting. Um, And and, and at one point, I'm looking down into my lap, and I'm the the, the decorative pillow I'm holding (laughs) um, is getting smaller. And I realize we're moments away from goose feathers, like all over the room. Um, True, true story. Um, I say all of that to say that as we begin the sermon in prayer, you can know how to pray. So the next 20 minutes aren't incredibly awkward. Um, uh, I'm joking. I I, I won't be awkward. I won't be awkward. Um, Much has changed over the years. Being married for now in the 17th year, having children, pastoring a church, writing a book to help guys not struggle with pornography but against pornography has changed me uh, for the better. And so as we approach this seventh commandment, um, there's some of that of who I am and who was and now am, but more importantly than any of that, we can rest in God, who longs for his people to know the blessings of walking with him all of their lives and in every area of their life, including sexuality. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you would waken us to the serious and sober joy that is extended to us in knowing you. And around what I say and through what I say and before and after and in between, I pray that you would cover it with your covenant love for your people, that your faithfulness and your joy and your forgiveness would shine, even as we talk about things that are hard. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, about five times a year, and in some years as many as eight, I stand on a stage very much like this one, sometimes exactly this one, or at some barn, or some mansion, or some vineyard, and I pause. I take a deep breath, 
And then at the appropriate time, I say in the strongest and warmest voice I know how to use, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses, and I gesture at the bridal party, to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. And depending on the different parts of the wedding ceremony, about 15 minutes later, give or take, I'll look at the man and I'll ask him a series of questions. Do you, Mr. Groom, before God and these witnesses enter into a marriage covenant with Miss Bride, to love her, uphold her, provide for her, protect her, comfort her, and keep her in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer, for better and worse, in sorrow and in joy, to cherish her and serve her, and forsaking all others, commit yourself to her so long as you both shall live. And Mr. Groom responds, I do. Then I ask the bride a similar but slightly differently worded version of the same question to which she also responds, I do. Forsaking all others. That's how the line goes. Every pastor at every wedding hears, I do. But some don't. Something changes. Or more likely we would say, many things change. We'll come back to this in a moment. If you're holding a Bible, or if you want to grab one, I'd encourage you to do so. I have one of these ones that just sits on the pew. Flip with me to page 57, which is Exodus chapter 20. We've been teaching through the book of Exodus the story of God's redemption, of pulling his people out of slavery in Egypt. And we've been moving through the book for multiple months, and we've slowed down near now as we hit the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Page 57, and we come to now the seventh commandment in verse 14, which reads, You shall not commit adultery. This week we have five words instead of just the four we had last week, sparse as they are. But whether four words or five, sometimes just a few words actually say a whole lot. When Pastor Ben was preaching through the fifth commandment, about honoring children, honoring mothers and fathers, he preached about the needs of this newly freed nation of Israel. Israel needed children to honor their parents in their homes so that society, their society, their newly formed nation, would become the kind of society where honor and civility flourished. You'll live long in the land when you cultivate honor. God promises them. That's my paraphrase of the second half of Exodus 20, verse 12. And this is not to mention that God himself also deserved honor. In a similar way, when we look at the seventh commandment, we see a similar need for homes and for society at large. There was a need to experience the faithfulness or faithfulness in the most intimate of relationships. There was a need for homes to know the faithfulness in marriage. And this is not to mention that Israel needed also to know the faithfulness of God to them. In his marriage with them, his people, his for better and worse love for you 
and for I. And don't we need these same things? Don't we need to know that in the most intimate relationships, men and women are faithful? Don't, wouldn't we be a stronger community if we knew that our relationship with God was faithful from him to us? When talking about the last commandment, you shall not murder, we saw the many implications to a host of issues from war and pacifism, genocide and capital punishment, abortion and euthanasia and violence in movies and suicide and terminal illness and so on and so forth. In a similar way, we could fill 30 minutes with this seventh command as well. Because the commandment here against adultery has implications for so many issues. We could talk about in vitro fertilization. We could talk about gender topics, lust and pornography. We could talk about cohabitation, living together before marriage. We could talk about divorce and remarriage in the verses in the Bible and the damage in homes and the joy in homes and the challenges of a blended family and all of that. We could talk about singleness and issues of gender. We could talk about the way that some of you struggle with same-sex attraction. Others with what might be called gender dysphoria. We could talk about what the church has hammered pretty well over the years, modesty. Again, we could fill 30 minutes. The audiobook version of the book I wrote to help guys struggle against pornography, and I didn't notice I had to go look it up, is two hours and 56 minutes. That's what Amazon said. Um, which is pretty short as books go, but would be unbearably long as a sermon. So how should we fill our 30 minutes? My outline is this. First, we'll talk about adultery in our marriages and adultery in our hearts. It's a very happy outline this morning. <laughs> I've been using the word adultery, but sometimes instead we use the word affair or cheating. And, and those words shroud in a euphemism the damage sex outside of God's design does. Affair and cheating are nicer sounding words that covers something ugly. But you'll notice, don't you, that whatever version of the Bible you're holding in English, it's going to use the word adultery. You shall not commit adultery. It's a harsh word because the reality is harsh. And you notice that adultery is a sin that you, quote, commit. You don't fall into adultery. So you're just walking around and like, oh, whoa, there's this hole here I didn't see. If there is such a thing as falling into a hole, it's not a hole dug with a backhoe. One giant scoop at one time. Adultery is a hole you dig with a spoon, one small scoop at a time, a long disobedience in the same direction. In college, there was this season when I spent this time with a number of friends, we were new Christians, and we'd go down into the college town, downtown, and we'd share about Jesus and, and, and try and have these conversations with people. And we'd do it late at night on the weekends. That's when the sinners were out, right? Um, <laughs> sort of not real proud of this era at the same time, even though I was doing good things. Um, that's mingled in with this. But, but I, I do think... Some of the good that we were doing uh, was as we would talk with people about the need for Jesus and 
I'm for evangelism. Don't like, don't take that the wrong way. I'm just for doing it better than I did it as a Christian for six months, uh, having been a Christian six months. But but, but what I, I remember this conversation. We're talking with this guy, and and one of the things you know we would do sometimes is we talk about the law of God because one of the things the law of God does is help us see our sin. Like, okay, pretty good guy, but oh wait, if you look at all the commandments and what they mean at the level of the heart, you realize, oh wow, I might need Jesus. That's that's I think how this multi-use tool, one way God is doing it. So I'm talking with this guy about adultery and how Jesus says, which we'll talk about later in the sermon, how we can commit adultery in our hearts. And I'm talking to this man, and the guy says back, oh, I've committed actual adultery. And he wasn't bragging, but nor was he ashamed. It, it, It just was. And I bring that story up because for all the ways we could expand from this command to talk about divorce and singleness and gender issues and so on and so forth, or even talk about how Jesus is concerned with our hearts. I don't want to pass actual adultery. Listen to me, church. Likely there are a few dozen, if not more, marriages of people who attend this church affected by adultery. For most, adultery is in the past. For most, The adultery has been confessed. For some, the effects of the adultery fester in secret shame. For others, adultery is not past tense, but present tense, meaning it's happening now. For others, it it might be future tense, just around the corner, because lines that shouldn't be crossed are already begun to be crossed. I say this not on the basis that I'm a prophet and God has given me some special insight into your private lives. I don't have that. I say these things on the basis of statistics and on the experience of pastoring churches for years. But the reason I say it, the reason I say these things is this. I'm hoping and praying that in the years to come, you will look back, some of you, on February 20th, 2022, as the morning that light broke into your darkness. And I'm praying that 20 years from today, 200 years from today, 20,000 years from today, you will be forever grateful for the day you heard the voice of God say, stop, come home. I've heard stories from several friends of mine who came home. Stories of how he came home and she came home. Home to God. Home to each other. Here's the way one friend put it. After everything that happened, happened. Somehow, he writes, we were still together. Somehow, God turned the tears of grief into tears of laughter. Somehow, he had restored what was broken. Somehow, God had sanctified us through each other's sin by the power of the Spirit. Somehow, 
We knew the days ahead would be filled with a new hope and a new grace. Those are the final lines in a four-part and gut-wrenching series of blog posts co-authored by a friend and pastor, co-authored with his wife. The blog posts chronicle the discovery of her adultery and the confession and the anger and the repentance and the counseling and the fighting and the time, the years. And all of that, it's both a terrible story and a wonderful story. Another pastor I appreciate, this time writing in a book, notes that he's counseled, quote, hundreds of couples in the wreckage of marital infidelity. He notes how mere physical attraction is rarely at the heart of adultery. Adultery, he writes, is not a means of getting to the same sort of sexual union as in a marriage, though through a slightly different channel. There's more afoot here, he writes. Drawing from the work of another counselor, he continues, an affair is not about sex, but nostalgia. They are not so much looking for sexual sensation as for drama. For a short period of time, the person can be swept up into the drama of I love you, do you love me, romance. Without all the burdens of who is picking up Chloe from school, or what day to put the recycling bin out at the curb. The secret lover seems to make the married person feel young or alive again until everything comes crashing down. The person cheating is looking for an alternative universe to see what would happen if he or she made different choices. The author uses that line about nostalgia a sentimental wishing for some time in the past where things were different, where things were better. I guess I would say, in a sense, we're all looking for that. We're all looking for perhaps what we could call the deeper nostalgia, the kind that looks back to a time before we were born, before the world was broken. If you get engaged and ask my wife and I to lead your premarital counseling and come over to our house five or six times and sit in our living room, we're going to discuss a number of Bible passages. And one of those is from Genesis chapter 2, the love story of the first man and first woman, the ground zero of what I'll call the deeper nostalgia. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we read God say, it is not good that the man should be alone, and and that not good, it should just feel odd. Genesis chapter 1, God made this, and it was good, and he made this, and it was good, and this, and it was good, and he made people, and whoa, that was very good, the passage says. And here, before chapter 3 still, God says, this is not good for a man to be alone. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. God goes on to do that, but not before Adam was made to name all the animals, So that Adam could discover that while animals are great, the elephant and the aardvark don't make for meaningful companions. And when the Lord makes the woman someone who is both different than Adam and yet the same, we read the first Hebrew love song, this at last, he says, it's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. That's how I think he said it. 
because she was taken out of man. The story comes from his side. Then we read the lines that will be familiar to many. God says, before there's parents, before there's children, programmatically, a plan, a paradigm, something into the future, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Behold the deeper nostalgia, a longing to be fully known and fully loved. The reason the seventh commandment exists is because God loves us and wants the best for us. The reputation of Christians and Bible teachers is that we're really good at teaching this long list of thou shall nots when it comes to sexuality. But any negative command God gives to avoid something is not to take away joy and happiness, but to give us real and lasting happiness, the kind that comes without shame. If you have a Bible, flip over with me to page 760. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. 760 in these pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. His longest continuous sermon where he touches on a number of issues. And you'll see in these verses, as in the ones around it, that Jesus does not have a thin view of the commandments, but a thick view. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. There in that verse and then in the coming one, he's speaking in this, what's called hyperbole, this exaggerated language to make a very serious point. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. The point being, if you pluck out one eye, you still have another eye to lust. So it's, it's not that, but he's trying to help us see the seriousness of what he's describing. And as with murder and anger that we talked about last week, Jesus is fighting sexual temptation at the headwaters of the stream. When there's pollution in a stream, you can build a water treatment facility to get the pollution out of the water. That takes a lot of work, and you might need to do that as well. But the other approach is going upstream to get the pollution before it contaminates the water. That's what Jesus is advocating here. In my sermon at this point, I had this quote. It wasn't super long, but it was long enough. I cut it from this pastor in London about lust. And his comment had the, talked about the dangers, the visual dangers of going to plays, to the theater, he called it, because of the potential for lust. Now that pastor has been dead for over 300 years. So he's talking about plays, the theater. But I was going to read it because it was a way to say these issues aren't new. Hence why Jesus would speak to adultery of the heart some 2,000 years before smartphones. But while the issues may not be new, we'd be wrong if we failed to see the ways that the challenges have 
been intensified because accessibility has increased. A few months ago, I was talking with a leader here at our church about what the average Christian watches on TV, and I have no way of knowing what the average Christian watches on TV except by guessing, because I'm an average Christian and I watch TV. So I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking through me and all of us. But there was a day when cable television was highly regulated. But in the days of streaming services, it's the Wild West. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and even major network outlets like Peacock, the streaming service for, what is it, NBC, I think, um, which would have formerly been regulated, now it seems are able to publish far and more more edgy and profane content. As such, the average Christian becomes numb to watching content that they would have perhaps been just 10 years or certainly 20 years horrified by. And even when a Christian does, when watching something, begins to watch something, but then decides said movie is over the line, and stops, which in a sense could be described as a spiritual victory, that cumulative effect of doing that over and over and over again has had a way of moving a line that probably most of you don't even realize. And I'd like for a moment to speak directly to Christian women. Collectively, pastors and Christian ministry leaders, perhaps even myself, have done a disservice to women in preaching about lust as only an issue for males. In preaching only to men about lust and pornography, we've created a culture where there's something of a double portion of shame. Not only is what I just did in my heart a sin, a Christian woman might think, but yikes, it's a sin associated only with an other gender. And that's not helpful. And I'm sorry if that's what you've heard here or other places. There's so many ways to grow as a church here and as the church broadly. And I'll mention something else that Scott brought up in the video. It's wrong to think of the seventh commandment merely as avoiding doing something. We often fail to see the positive effort this commandment also requires of us or invites us into. We are not simply to avoid something, but to pursue intimacy of mind and heart and time and affection. You can break the seventh commandment when you rob your spouse of affection because all your affection gets poured into your work or your hobby or your children. All of us, single or married, male or female, young or old, really need Jesus. There's not a person here who can approach God on the final day and say, Lord, look at my moral perfection. Isn't it great? I think back to the weddings I officiate and the question I ask, do you, Mr. Groom, before God and these witnesses, enter into a marriage covenant with Miss Bride to love her, uphold her, provide for her, protect her, comfort her, and keep her in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer, for better and for worse, in sorrow and joy, to cherish her and serve her, and protect her, and forsaking all others, commit yourself to her so long as you both shall live. The groom responds, I do, and the bride responds, 
as well. I do. And yet all of us don't. In one way or another, married or single, young or old, male or female, we need Jesus. And in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it's here again that we touch what we might call the deeper nostalgia. Perhaps this time we would call it the truer and greater nostalgia. The story of a groom conquering a dragon and winning back a bride. The story of Jesus living and dying and rising and winning a bride to himself, not because she's lovely and worthy, but because he's good. We often read at weddings, or you'll hear read at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage about love. And I know some two serious pastors who object to reading that passage in a wedding because the passage isn't about a sentimental, happy sappy love of a bride and a groom who haven't yet had the wind knocked out of them, I guess, is how those pastors might view couples standing in front of them at the altar. Maybe there's truth there. But that's why I love to have that passage read at weddings. The passage is itself gritty, whether the couple's love is yet or not. God tells us that love, quote, keeps no record of wrong. And, quote, bears all things. And I'll look out at the congregation, I'll look at the bride and the groom, and I'll say, what does that imply? That there are wrongs that get inflicted and things to bear. That's gritty love. But the way I want to end the sermon this morning is talking not about our marriages, not about talking about our love, but talking about the greater marriage and the greater love, I want to end by reading 1 Corinthians 13, but inserting the phrase, the love of Christ for you into the passage. Maybe you've heard someone do that before. It's not original to me, but I think it's helpful. And so to the weak in this area who can't go on and need strength, to the wounded in this area who are broken and long to be whole, to the wayward in this area who are lost and far from home. Hear these words of comfort. The love of Christ for you is patient and kind. The love of Christ for you does not envy or boast. The love of Christ for you is not arrogant or rude. The love of Christ for you is not resentful. Or irritable. The love of Christ for you does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The love of Christ for you bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Christ's love will never forsake you. And that's a good Next week, Pastor Ben will explore the Eighth Commandment, You Shall Not Steal, and we'll talk about ownership and generosity. Let's pray and invite the worship team to come back up. Heavenly Father, sometimes we show up to church and we get 30 minutes of intensity we didn't ask for. 
but maybe we didn't know we needed. As I prayed at the beginning, Lord, I pray now that in and around and through and under and beneath and behind, would you pour out your love and your strength and your holiness and your joy into our hearts so that we together could become the people who are conformed into the image of Christ. Faithful men and women, before you and before each other. In Christ's name we pray.